Good morning, everyone. Well, I, don't, I don't remember the, the last time I was here, but I remember the first time I was here. I think it was back in the uh, 80s, and um, one of my very first, maybe, maybe my first visit to Australia. And at that time, we had a little, in my community in, in Montreal, where I was then, we had a little sheep, well, we had a little farm, as a, like a retreat, down in Vermont. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. And um, I'm standing a little distance from you, so I don't infect you <laughs> with my wisdom. No, with my, uh, <laughs> with my uh, cold. So... Um, and I mentioned to David uh, when, when I was here, I said, oh, we have a little... He was telling me he'd grown up with sheep. And uh, I said, oh, we have, a, we have a sheep farm down in Vermont. He said, oh, how many sheep? So I said, a hundred. <laughs> so he said, a hundred? He said, we eat that many before breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, well, it's one, of, one of those little exchanges that will probably come back to me on my deathbed. <laughs> don't know why, but it's one of those things you remember even as you get older. Well, I'm very glad, actually, to be younger than I was taken to be yesterday. <laughs> we had, if you were there, I don't know, but we had uh, one very lovely part of the day. It was at midday when we, uh, Penny Starrett brought in three children, young meditators, I think between... 10 and 12 years old, from a local school who meditate. And they, they came in and they introduced us to meditation. And we meditated with them. And then after the meditation, uh, we had a little sharing with them about what meditation meant for them. So I unwisely began by asking the 10-year-old, I said, and how old are you? And she said, 10 years old. So I said, and how old do you think I am? <laughs> so she said, 80. <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember I was, I was uh, saying yesterday that aging is a very relative uh, concept because you're always younger than some people, you're always older than others. And uh, when I was, had a meeting during the summer with a wonderful few days, you may have seen it on the website, with Thomas Keating, Richard Rohr, and uh, Tilden Edwards from the Shalim Institute at Snowmass, Father Thomas's monastery in Colorado. And Father Thomas had initiated the, the meeting um, without a very strict agenda. It was really just to bring together, bring us together to reflect on the, the place of contemplation in the uh, church today and how our different communities and networks have been engaged with that and what we've learned over the last 20 or 30 years. And also uh, how we are, con can contribute to the need for contemplation in our very confused, unpredictable, and, and uh, tempestuous world that we have um, 
we have created, all the more all the more so since the American election and Brexit in Europe, in, in, in Britain. So we met to talk about um, the, the growth and the influence of the contemplative mind in the church and in the modern world. And, uh, but among that particular group, I was the youngest. Father Thomas is 93. Uh, Tilden was 83, and Richard Raw is 73. So I, I was the baby of the group, they kept on saying. So aging is a relative concept, and, uh, or age is a relative concept. Aging is a universal experience. And understanding the meaning of that experience is really to understand the meaning of life. And the meaning of life doesn't come to us as a formula, as a definition, or as a doctrinal answer. It doesn't really come to us as an answer at all. We hunger for meaning. We need meaning. A good death, to die well, uh, it is necessary so all the evidence suggests to have a good death is necessary to have meaning in your life. To feel that your life at that moment is meaningful. And meaning, as I say, doesn't really correspond to an answer, to a question. It's not something that can be packaged because the real meaning of meaning seems to be connection. It's if people feel connected. Connected to what or to who? Connected to ourselves, perhaps most importantly, at whatever depth we are, have managed to, to come, to whatever level of self-knowledge and self-acceptance we have arrived at, that is our level of connection with ourselves. The Desert Fathers and Mothers used to say that self-knowledge is more important than the ability to work miracles. Self-knowledge is transformative. Self-knowledge is one of the first fruits of contemplation. Self-knowledge has no limits, no boundaries. In the Christian understanding, self-knowledge is the foundation and the condition, it's the necessary condition for the knowledge of God. We only know God to the degree that we have come to know ourselves. And self-knowledge means more than just having information about ourselves, more even than the psychological self-awareness that comes, we hope, with age, with mistakes, and by recognizing the patterns that form our minds, our personality, our emotions, our desires, our fantasies, our hopes. So we have patterns, we're made up of patterns, repetitive patterns that get established, you know, very early in our life, in a pre-conscious way, perhaps. So one of the first fruits of, of any contemplative prayer is that we come to uh, 
uh, psychological self-awareness. It's inevitable we will become more aware of our selves at the psychological level um, as we deal with our distractions, as we deal with the question of discipline, as we struggle with the process of purification, which is the first stage of the contemplative journey, the spiritual journey. So it's inevitable that we will come to some uh, serious encounter with ourselves, awakening to ourselves. It may be uncomfortable at first, but it's also very um, much of a relief to come to this. I remember when I, I became a monk uh, after six months in the monastery in London with John Main. I had gone into the uh, little lay community that he had started in the monastery. And I went there really, I was in a sort of transition stage in my life and uh, between careers. And um, he had come back to London and I, he told me he was starting this little lay community on the grounds of the monastery, he fixed up the house. And uh, the idea was that there would be about a group of about six young laymen who would come and live there and spend six months and learn to meditate and share in the life and the work of the monastery, but uh, be focused upon this uh, contemplative life integrated with the prayer and work of the monastery. So I was kind of drawn to that. I thought, well, finally I will get to meditate properly and I'll have this structure, I'll have this discipline that will help me to meditate. That was really about the level of my consciousness of why I wanted to do it. Sometimes we're drawn to things without fully understanding at the time what it is we are drawn by or what is calling us. Anyway, that was enough to get me in there. And the six months there were quite challenging. Uh, I had to try to give up smoking. Uh, I didn't find the meditation three or four times a day. I didn't find that difficult. Meditating with a group of people and with Father John's guidance was, was what I was really there for. And I didn't find the uh, living alongside or sharing in the life of the monastery difficult, but I think the process of awakening to myself, coming to self-knowledge, having two detached retinas <laughs> in the first month, uh, all of this was uh, was the was, was the was the was the context. <coughs> in which this process of self-knowledge was taking place. And it was painful. Painful, but at the same time, a relief. I don't know if you say it was enjoyable, but it, was, it certainly felt meaningful. I felt connected to myself more seriously and interestingly uh, and clearly than I had ever before or for a long time. And it was the first time that I had really understood what self-knowledge meant. As part of that self-knowledge, of course, I came to a greater psychological self-awareness 
and self-acceptance. But the self-knowledge itself is a more about experience than conceptual or intellectual awareness or psychological patterning. The self-knowledge in this understanding of the desert tradition being more important than the ability to work miracles is about entering into an experience of self of one's own being. And this is by nature, by definition, impossible really to conceptualize or to define, but it's a very real experience. And, this, and the experience of self-knowledge, just entering into being, being oneself, this is what we repeat over and over about the meaning of meditation. Uh, it's not about trying to achieve anything. It's not trying to perform anything. It's just about being oneself and allowing uh, the, the, the layers of distraction, the layers of ego identity just to gradually peel away, to be free from them and to come into this experience which is a, an experience of silence and stillness and of simplicity. So it's this experience of being that really cons constitutes self-knowledge. But this experience of self-knowledge has a transformative effect. We are not the same after we have come to know ourselves in this way. Psychological self-awareness, discovering that we have this or that problem or characteristic or accepting ourselves in certain aspects of our character, all of that, of course, can make life easier and brings about changes in us. But the deepest transformation happens not through psychological self-awareness, but through this experience of connected con connectivity, connectedness to our true self, self-knowledge in the sense I'm describing. And it's this which changes the patterns themselves. It's this that brings us to a greater awareness in every aspect and a corner of our lives. It's this which enters into all our relationships because self-knowledge is the, is the defining quality of all human relationships, marriage, friendship, work, community. It's, it's the quality of your own self-knowledge which determines the quality of the relationship. And if you want to save the relationship or improve the relationship or develop it, uh, the only way you can do that is not by telling the other person how to change, but of course by entering into a fuller self-knowledge oneself of oneself. So, all of this, I think, is uh, a way of understanding what our life is for, what the journey of our life means. It begins with this deeper connection to our own true self, but immediately 
that that self-knowledge begins to stir and awaken, we, uh, we also find ourselves growing in the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of God, again, a rather difficult thing to describe or define, but our knowledge of God is the awareness that all our relationships, our very being and all our relationships, are grounded in this relationship with God. That God is not just another being with whom we have a passing acquaintanceship, acquaintance, not just another a being with whom we relate, but God, in any meaningful sense, is being itself, the being of all beings, the being from which all forms of existence uh, emerges. First there is being, then there is existence. The word existence literally means to stand outside, to emerge from. So existence, that means our ordinary life, that means our relationships, that means our mistakes, that means our achievements, that means our discoveries, it means our losses. Everything that we call human life, human existence, emerges from this uh, ground of being. And it's this discovery that we make through the practice of any form of contemplative prayer. It's what meditation teaches us very quickly. And the more one integrates these times of meditation into our daily life so that they become just an ordinary part of our life, we don't have to make a big deal about it every day. We just meditate. The doctor with whom we're working in Ireland to bring meditation to the medical profession was speaking to a group of doctors the other day and I heard him say to the doctors who were being introduced to meditation, he said, when I first began to meditate, the problem was doing it every day. And now, he said, the problem is not doing it. <laughs> and if, I'm, if I miss the meditation for whatever reason, he's a clinical, he's, he's a consultant uh, hematologist, very uh, busy practice. He's also a young father of four or five children. Um, so, but he has, he has uh, come to the point in his very busy life, active existence, that meditation is simply part of his life and it has, it has changed his life, of course. And he notices every day, if for any reason he's not able to meditate, he realizes that his existential um, life, professional, personal, whatever, is affected. So, being comes before doing. It's the most obvious statement to make. It's the meaning of the story of Martha and Mary. Mary has chosen the better part, Jesus says to Martha. And he's not putting Martha down by saying that she is of less value as an active person than Mary who is this contemplative. 
But I think at this point in the story, he's saying that first we have to first be and then do. And if we get out of touch, if we lose that connection with our being, and that's very easy to do, if we lose that connection with our being, then our doing is going to go off the road. Our activity will lose its sense of direction and purpose and meaning. We need this connection between the being and the doing parts of our lives. Now, at what period in our lives do we start to become aware of this? Well, I think it is an awareness that happens as soon as we begin to become conscious. It doesn't find conceptual or theological or psychological expression. We don't know how to describe it until later, until we've built up our vocabularies and our knowledge and our um, ways of reflection. But even young children who are introduced to meditation will refer to this importance of, um, of, of meditation in their lives and of the way it allows them to see how their lives become balanced between being and doing. They don't put it like that, but when you speak to them, it's very clear. For, for example, there was a little boy in a video that we produced in the UK who's been introduced to meditation. And uh, <clears throat> there were a couple of memorable statements. One of, one of them was the, sort of, I think, eight-year-old girl who said, um, yes, I like meditation very much. It's the only quiet time I get any every day. And this little boy said, with great perspicacity, he said, uh, yes, if you ask people to do things before you meditate with them, he said, usually they don't do it. I think he was a little organizer. He looked a bit, little, <laughs> little bit serious, actually, but he was already probably quite an organizer. He said, usually they don't do it. But after meditation, they do. And it was like he had discovered something about the, uh, the effect of meditation on relationships, upon how he related to other people, and, you know, at ten, eight, ten years old. So I think this awareness of the relationship between being and doing uh, develops really as soon as we become conscious and practice of meditation turns up the, the light of consciousness. And this is important, I think, for us to understand the, the process of aging, the meaning of aging, which, which begins as soon as we are born. I think there's a biological uh, point, I think it may be in the early 20s or so, where technically you begin to age. But I think as a, as a, as a, as a 
as a person, of course, it's obvious that we, we are creatures oriented towards death, and uh, we become increasingly aware of death. We may deal with that awareness. It, it breaks into our consciousness at a certain period in childhood. First time we, we are aware that people can go out of this realm of existence. And um, <coughs> we may repress that awareness of death as time goes on. We may just push it out of sight. Or we may, in fact, be consciously uh, controlled and manipulated by the fear of death. It's amazing how many people are really frightened of death, frightened of dying. So uh, we are, from a very early age, probably aware that of our mortality is probably what sets us aside from other creatures in the in the animal kingdom. We seem to be the only um, creature that is particularly aware or concerned about death. And this this awareness seemed to have come into collective human consciousness at quite a specific moment in our evolution when we began to bury the dead and show respect for them rather than just throwing it away like an empty wrapper. And uh, there's this great uh, structure, I think about uh, six or 7,000 years old in New Grange in County Meath in Ireland. Uh, and it's a Neolithic uh, burial mound with this small entrance, which narrow little entrance, which goes into an inner chamber, completely dark inner chamber where the, the bones of probably the kings or benefactors were buried. And, uh, but over the entrance to the uh, mound is a very narrow little aperture. And it's a little tunnel or channel that, that runs all the way through and opens up on the inside of the burial chamber. And for a long time, nobody could understand what this was for because they obviously didn't need air in there. Uh, so what was it for? And then it dawned on them at dawn on the winter solstice, December the 21st, that the meaning of it was that the first rays of the new sun, the new year, hit this aperture, traveled down this little cha channel, and burst into this dark inner chamber, filling it with light for about, I think, 14 minutes. Still does. So, we don't know what, what the belief system of our ancestors in that was about, but we can certainly say that they, they saw death had some kind of meaning, that it was related to a cycle of rebirth, and that this affected not only the, the crops and the world of nature, but the human as well. So our awareness of the, um, of the meaning of, of being as connection, as communion, we might even say, begins very early. And that's why we can introduce meditation to children 
and we grow, we grow in that wisdom that meditation uh, stimulates, encourages through self-knowledge, we grow according to our own capacity. You've heard me say before that once I was in a classroom with uh, young children in uh, Townsville in Queensland where we began teaching meditation with children systematically in schools. And there was this little girl who was staring at me as if I had just dropped off out of a spaceship. I was wearing my habit, my white habit. And uh, she was just staring at me as the other little children were getting ready for the meditation in the classroom. And I said to her, hello, what's your name? And she uh, just stared at me. <laughs> she probably thought, oh, he speaks. <laughs> and then, uh, so I kept on trying and eventually she did respond and her response was a question. She said, are you an angel? Now, a few minutes later, we were sitting next to each other on the ground, meditating. Now, there's no doubt that she was more angelic than me. She was closer to God than me. But we were both meditating together. Her at her stage of self-knowledge and evolution, and me at whatever stage I was at. So we begin this journey, and we can make this journey intergenerationally from the beginning. The relationship between the generations is vital for a healthy humanity and a healthy society. I'll come back to this in a minute. So we could say then, and because we, we all recognize that children have, can have amazing flashes of wisdom that stagger us. They speak as if out of some profound knowledge or some profound clarity. Perhaps what, what it is is they show us that wisdom is about relationship to the whole, to the entire, to wholeness itself, to God. And this wisdom, which is a vision or a, an experience of our communion with the whole, that transcends our individual ego and sense of separateness. So wisdom is always the transcendence, always happens with the transcendence of the ego because it awakens us to our relationship to the whole. And it is ever expanding. It grows through the cycle of loss and finding, the endless repetitive cycle of death and rebirth that we are perhaps now more conscious of at a personal and psychological level, that if you're a farmer you're, or a gardener, you're very conscious of it happening through the seasons of nature as well. Several of the parables of Jesus take us into the heart of his teaching through this theme of loss and finding. The good shepherd going after the lost sheep the woman who lost a, a, a coin and searches her house high and low in order to find it. And above all, this beautiful parable of the prodigal son. My son was lost and is found. 
<coughs> has died and has come back to life. And those parables illuminate the same meaning, really, of life as a cycle uh, in, in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus himself. John Main says that every time we meditate, we enter into the dying and rising of Jesus. It's a much better way for us to understand what we're doing when we meditate than just thinking about meditation as an immediate fix-it sort of remedy or as simply a way of improving your blood pressure or your immune system or getting a better sleep at night or dealing with stress, all of which are measurable benefits of meditation. But the deeper meaning of meditation, the fruits of the Spirit that emerge in us through self-knowledge, love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are fruits of the divine life. We can't measure them, but we certainly know that when they're present. And these emerge in us, in our characters, in our personalities, in our relationship to ourselves, and in our relationship to others. So, if we can see the connection between this process, this fundamental process of life's cycle, meditation immediately becomes more deeply meaningful and important for us. So as I say, uh, we can begin to meditate, we can begin to make sense of the meaning of the aging process from a very young age, according to our capacity to understand it and express it. And so this journey of meditation that unfolds and continues naturally and unselfconsciously as part of the journey of life, so we get to the point where we simply say, I just meditate. It's part of my life. Don't have to put up a big fight over it. Now it has just slipped into my life that I take these <coughs> times of being where I drop the existential anxieties and the existential plans and memories and existential all the problems of my life. I can drop those, lay them aside as Jesus says we should do, and enter into this pure prayer, prayer of the heart, this, prayer, this essence of prayer, prayer of being. And this throws a light of meaning and understanding upon the stages of our life. And at each stage of our life, each milestone or each phase as it unfolds, we are able to make more sense and more meaning of it because meditation, or this contemplative awareness, is part of our daily routine. We often, sometimes difficult to know when you move from one stage of life to another. Sometimes it's a shock to realize that you have 
moved from one stage to another. When you're quite young, of course, uh, physical changes in your body that um, make it very, you know, you're, you know you're moving from childhood into adolescence. Um, then, of course, there are physical changes as you move from middle age into old age or into, into the last twilight stage of life. So there are physical signals, but even before the physical signals, the process has already begun. It's a continuum. It's not, uh, but there are perhaps are particular moments, wake-up calls, little shocks of awareness when you say, hmm, I'm not as young as I thought I was. Yeah. This, is, this is part of the collective wisdom of humanity, that we can name these stages. In Hinduism, there are four stages of life. The first is the stage of the student. It usually lasts, they say, until about the age of 25. And during this stage, you are very dependent on your guru. Your parents or your gurus and your teachers and any other significant individuals in your life, older people who are helping you to learn. This is what you do as a student. You are acquiring knowledge and skills and, and the fundamental sort of uh, way of handling yourself in the real world. And then you, you progress from student to householder. And the householder stage lasts until when do you think it lasts? Maybe, yes, they say about 50. Okay, so this is the stage where you are, you're working, you're accumulating the necessary material resources to live. You are, uh, most people, uh, having children, preparing them also, being a guru to them, training them, and so on. So this householder stage lasts until whenever. And then the third stage in the Indian vision of the journey of life is that of the hermit. And we can all identify with the role of student, the role of householder in our culture, but after that, modern Western culture breaks with the traditional wisdom because we call this age, this phase, retirement. And that has a very loaded connotation, doesn't it? So you say to somebody, what do you do? You say, oh, I'm retired. So don't do anything. If you ask it of a monk, then what does a monk say, Father David? He says, <laughs> so he says, uh, you know, monks never retire. And I suppose it's true of, of parents, you never really retire as a parent, or, and so on and so on. But um, our idea that in this grand parenthood stage of life, um, that they that we would go to a forest, 
You can take your spouse with you. But you now begin to devote your life to the spiritual journey itself with a very strong focus. And then, if you survive that, the final stage of life is what they call sannyasa. You become a sannyasi, which means you become a wandering, a wandering soul, a wandering figure, uh, free from all ties, connections, and status. So that is regarded as a rather rare stage of evolution for, for most people. But I think in our culture, we've, we haven't really, we, we don't make sense of this second half of life, the two stages, the hermit and the sannyasi, as being the spiritual meaning of life, which gives meaning to everything that has gone before. And this is perhaps the biggest challenge that we have to a contemporary understanding of aging. Instead of thinking about it as retirement and worrying just about our, you know, circumstances, if, if, if our priorities at this stage became very clearly that of the spiritual journey, that's where our focus is, <coughs> then life becomes simpler. The aging process becomes quite explicitly a process, not easy, but a process of accelerating simplification. Your life becomes more and more simple until it evaporates. So that's not how we see it. We see the second half of life as all of the problems of aging, all of the problems of material support, and so on and so on. So I think this is one of the great gifts of <coughs> monastic wisdom to our culture. That the monastic community expresses in a very simple way by its lifestyle, by its care and respect for the old as well as for the young and the sick and the visitor, all of the vulnerable people that St. Benedict takes special care for. So the monastery, monastic ideal, the monastic reality, however large or small the monastic community, expresses this, this, uh, this gradual and organic natural evolution of the stages of life. Of course, the monks, monks in the monastery as they get older do less, but they don't become less important. And the care that they are given is, is not seen as a burden on the community. It is actually a grace because these old Sometimes they can be a bit curmudgeonly, of course, like any, anyone. But generally speaking, in my experience, in, in good monasteries, the care of the old monk 
by the younger ones, bringing in professionals obviously when necessary, is a grace for the community. And the older monk may not be a teacher in the ordinary sense of the word, may not be preaching, but is, is teaching the community by his um, or her um, movement into the radical simplicity of old age and, and dying. Remember there was a monk at Monte Oliveto who, who, when I first met him 25 years ago, was um, a kind of a real little tough Italian, very, um, what, very, anyway, very kind of tough and a bit awkward person. And after, and over the years, I saw him change a little bit, but when he got seriously ill and lived through long illness within the care of the community, his, his, his character changed or his personality changed. And I suppose the real Theophilo became visible. And I was amazed just before he died to spend some time with him and see what a sweet and gentle and wise person he had become and how the community had allowed that to happen, that accepted his roughness and lived with it and allowed him to grow into who he became and he became a gift and a grace to the whole community. And this is a little vision I, I have for our, hopefully our new community, our new, our new home in, uh, in France. As you know, we feel it's time now for us to, as a community, to have a permanent home. We found this beautiful place in Bonveau. It has found us, I feel. It was originally a 12th century monastery, and you can feel the presence of 700 years of con contemplation there. And um, I, I would really hope that it will become um, a, a place where there is both a, a core community, uh, living in the spirit of the rule of St. Benedict, and uh, an extended community, a place where meditators from around the world will come for shorter or longer periods of time, and if we can, if we have the resources, we can, we can develop on a small scale, obviously, but on a larger scale than we can at the moment. We can develop a model of this kind of contemplative life where young and old and middle-aged and the permanent members and the visiting members can live and share the journey of life at its different stages together and illuminate each other by the way we live out those stages. And that's my hope and dream and I hope um, you can share that vision. It does express something very essential about the Benedictine vision of life which is of an inclusive community in which each is caring for the other where things are shared, 
and in which um, there is a, a growing sense of, of life uh, as a process of tr transcendence and integration. But it's also, I think, reflects something of the wisdom of the Celtic monastic vision as well, which is rather different from St. Benedict. St. Benedict was a bit more, but maybe St. Benedict was closer to the Celtic monks than medieval Benedictine monasticism became after it became a little bit more um, controlled by Rome and, and, uh, and the, the rules of the, of the Roman church. The Celtic church was a very different kind of reality, maybe quite complementary in a way. Celtic monasteries were very much in touch with the spirit of the desert tradition and clearly the spirituality, the contemplative practice, and the meditation of the Celtic monks was, came in directly infused from the uh, Egyptian desert. But it came into a rather unique kind of cultural situation with the tribal and family structure of Irish life. And the monasteries seem to have been very related to these family and tribal structures. And out of this, uh, out of this Celtic monasticism, we can see how they Christianized or integrated the pre-Christian Druidic uh, culture with the deepest wisdom of the gospel. One of the, St. Columba has this wonderful phrase, my Druid is Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Mary, the great abbot. It was a monastic church rather than an Episcopal church. And the monastic community, which was based upon family connections, sometimes they went and had fights with the other monasteries because, <laughs> because of this, because of the way the Irish do. But because of this family structure, the, um, the The wisdom of the family, which is passed from parent to child to grandchildren, was, I think, that much more personally present in the relationships of the, of the monastery. Those Celtic monks were grounded in a deep love of nature, their poetry shows how powerfully they experience God in the natural world. It was grounded in a contemplative practice that we would have recognized very, we would recognize very directly from what we know of meditation. It also it also had a, a, a freedom about it, a dynamism about it, 
which complements the stability of the Benedictine model of monasticism. And I think maybe contemporary monasticism needs to bring these two sides uh, of the coin uh, into closer relationship. So, but whether in the Celtic <coughs> or in the Benedictine model, the, um, the wisdom of life, the wisdom of the spirit, accumulates from one generation to the next and is expressed in the care, the loving concern, and the practical, tangible attention that is given by one generation to the next. And I think that, that's why, as I say, the monastic model is something that modern culture, where we've lost the spiritual meaning of this second half of life, this is where, we, where the monastic model can make a, um, can teach us how to recover it, how to find ways of making the second half of our life more meaningful and rather than seeing it just as a period of decline, just as a solving of medical problems, rather than just a, an experience of increasing loss, the death of your friends or the, of your spouse, but to see it with all of this loss, which comes with older, older, the older stages of life, but to see it also as a finding, even in these painful experiences of loss, we are still in that perennial cycle of losing and finding that we become aware of at a very young age, but which reaches its full sapiential wisdom understanding at the end of our lives. So, before we meditate now, I'd just like to read you this little prayer of St. Columban that I came across recently. And then we'll take a little stretch and have our time of meditation. This is St. Columban, the uh, founder of Iona, the Iona community. One of the great wandering Celtic monks. Kindle in our hearts, O God, the flame of that love which never ceases, that it may burn in us, giving light to others. May we shine forever with thy eternal light, the light of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. As John Main reminds us in his teaching on meditation, we are simply discovering, according to our stage of life, according to our capacity, we are simply discovering the flame of that divine love which never ceases, which burns in our hearts and 
if we find it in ourselves, gives light to others as well. So let's stay um, in silence, but maybe you'd like to stand and have a little stretch for a moment so that we can prepare for meditation. If you want to just raise your... Let's, let's, stay, let's stay in silence so that we can go straight into the meditation. So have a good stretch. And if you like, but I'm not covered by insurance, so don't uh, take any risks. You can lean back a little bit. You know, the word attention, which we know is crucial to understanding of meditation, the word attention is related to the, the word tendon. And the tendon is the muscle that goes to the bone, isn't it? And that allows us to stretch. So attention is this capacity to stretch, to expand our awareness, our minds and hearts. Let's just take a moment after we stretch to stand upright, relax your shoulders, feel the force of gravity pulling you to the ground, imagine there's a, a line from the crown of your head to the heels of your feet. <coughs> And we're just standing aligned on that, just as we are engineered to stand and with a natural oddness and, or quirkiness of our bodies, but just stand naturally. And then turn your attention to your breathing for a few moments. St. Anthony of the Desert once called all the monks of the desert together and he preached a very short sermon, Always Breathe Christ. So let's just breathe Christ as we pay attention to that cycle of breath that accompanies us through all the stages of life and is a quiet teacher, reminding us that life is a gift that we accept, we receive, we breathe in. And because it is a gift, we let it go, we breathe out, so that we can find it again. We find, we lose, we find, we lose. And then very gently begin to introduce your word, your mantra. Begin to repeat it silently in your mind and heart, gently without force. Ma, ra, na, tha. Ma, ra, na, tha.
listening to the word as you say it, giving it your attention, laying aside your thoughts, becoming simple. Okay, let's sit down. So the other thing we carry with us in different forms throughout our life is our body. We are embodied beings all our life, so meditation is also an embodied experience of prayer. So just take a moment to check your posture so that your, the way you're sitting, up with your back straight, relaxed, Relax your shoulders. <coughs> the way you sit reflects the mental state that we are developing in the meditation. Alert but relaxed. Calm but awake. Then again, focus your attention on the mantra as you repeat it gently and faithfully. Let's move into the meditation now with this short prayer. Heavenly Father, open our hearts to the silent presence of the Spirit of your Son. Lead us into that mysterious silence where your love is revealed to all who call Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Good, so let's conclude the meditation with this prayer of St. Paul to the, in the letter to the Ephesians. With this in mind, I kneel in prayer to the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. That out of the treasures of his glory he may grant you strength and power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that through faith Christ may dwell in your hearts in love. With deep roots and firm foundations, may you be strong to grasp with all God's people what is the height, the length, the depth, and the breadth of the love of Christ, and to know it, although it is beyond knowledge. 
And so may you come to fullness of being, the fullness of God's own self.